Welcome to another episode of The Road to Paradise, hosted by the Orthodox Logos. My name is Ian Silver, and I'm here with my co-host, Nathaniel Harmon. Greetings. And today, we are re-recording an episode (laughs) that we recorded last night, but unfortunately, the intro music was playing over the first 15 minutes or so, so we are going to go ahead and give this another try. We are going to be discussing the lives of St. Patrick, the Enlightener of Ireland, and also um, Nathaniel's patron saint. St. David of Wales. And that might be a good intro into some really fun medieval myths and legends, and also some some legends of early Christendom in the British Isles. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Hopefully Ian won't be too bored. I'm already bored. (laughs) No. So yeah, this this should be a, a good episode. We had intentions previously we talked about doing an episode on cultural appropriation but we decided to kind of keep those things separate from the lives of the saints Um, that will be a topic that we'll be discussing uh this month i believe probably in the next two weeks Yeah. yeah so if you guys have any input on that or any questions any other topics you want us to discuss just leave a comment send us a dm make sure to like subscribe um the road to paradise Instagram is back up and running. We had to reset the password, so you can reach out to us there. And all the zines have shipped. If you've gotten them, please repost repost pictures of them, share them, and there will be another one coming out in April. It'll be the first of the bigger editions, I guess you could say. It'll have two months' worth of, of content in it. And if you'd like to subscribe, go to orthodoxlogos.com. You can find the six-month or the one-year subscription there, as well as some other items. Um, Everything helps with funding the website, funding Nathan's wine and tobacco. (laughs) No, but also... actually whiskey and tobacco. Whiskey and tobacco. Not during Great Lent, but... But yeah, it helps out, and it especially can give us and, and me an opportunity to give back to our parish. That's kind of the main reason I started a lot of this and yeah i would like to you know any anything helps so let's see i think the first thing we were going to dive into is the topic of the russia ukraine war and nathan I'll, I'll let you say a few words first about that right since this is a even though this is a podcast dedicated to older issues and um shall we say more thematic worldview questions the topic of or the, the ukraine russia war is something that affects us, especially as Orthodox Christians, because in case for anyone who doesn't know, that's listening to this podcast, Ukraine and Russia are both Orthodox countries. So those are our brothers that are killing each other. And that is a really, really sad and unfortunate state of affairs. In this podcast, we're not going to try to take sides or say, okay, well, Putin is right or Zelensky is right. We're not going to do that here. But I am, and Ian agrees with me in this, we're going to call you all to pray that this conflict ends in a peaceful fashion, swiftly, without tremendous foreign interference, because that is something that generally leads to the, shall we say, increase in violence and the longevity of wars. So be praying. Um, Also, if you live in the West and you're listening to this podcast, be aware that the majority of Americans and the majority of Westerners don't know anything about orthodoxy. So be prepared for unpleasant interactions and respond graciously when that happens. Respond with love because all of us that were converts at one point didn't know what orthodoxy was. So be charitable, be loving, pray for our brothers and sisters who are fighting and dying, pray for peaceful resolution. Yeah, I agree. I'm basically going to mimic that and just say that we need to take the heavenly stance on this situation regardless of you know, what you believe or what your political affiliation, I think that instead of, you know, being on the red side or the blue side, we could try to, you know, put our aim towards the middle, especially when it comes to something like this and, and just realize, like Nathan said, that 
There's Orthodox Christians that are dying. Both countries are suffering. And I think it's better to, I mean, you can have your opinions and you, you can know what you know. And there is things that the media isn't telling us, which we've known for a long time. But regardless of that, the most important thing is to just continue praying for those, especially during Lent. It's a it's a kind of an interesting time that this this has happened, but you know, it's all God's timing. So Well, as Paggio is very fond of pointing out, symbolism happens and for anyone who's got a memory that's longer than five minutes ago, you'll remember that a hundred years the, ago, right? The start of this conflict in Ukraine mirrors the same pattern that happened with COVID. Right. We started Holy Week, you know, it was because I believe it was the week after um, Cheese Fair Sunday, after Forgiveness Sunday, that the war everything, was announced. The, that COVID really started shutting down stuff in the West. And that's that led to the Lent that we had in 2020, where, I mean, I say the Lent that we had, the Lent that we all spent in isolation and didn't get to see each other and didn't get to go to liturgy in most cases, you know, so... There's a lot more going on with this than just territorial um, fighting. This there, There's a spiritual aspect to this that's frightening, and it's not new. Yeah. So just remember to pray and attend as many services as you can and show, show support, especially if you're not Orthodox and you're listening to this, reach out to your Orthodox friends and, you know, more specifically your Russian Orthodox friends and make sure that they're doing okay. I know they probably have, some of them have family overseas that are, that are involved in this conflict. And also this is going to be a testing time where we're going to see persecution and we're already seeing Orthodox churches being vandalized, um, right. dirty diapers being thrown at Russian Orthodox churches doorsteps because all Russians are to blame. You know, that's, that's the, what the media wants to tell you. And that definitely is not, it's not the case. So yeah. And even were that the case, that's contrary. That action is contrary to scripture. If Russia were, if, if all Russians were our enemies, which they are not, um, even if that were the case, we are to treat them with love and compassion. And the Russian Orthodox churches are not the enemy; um, they never have been. So, be yeah, praying. They've had a they've had a rough history, right? And they continue to have a rough, you know, a rough history. So I think uh, we wanted to start the podcast off with that and. You know, not just put it in the middle of everything. I think it's important to to remember that, especially during Lent. So, with that being said, we can we can go ahead and get into this. And if you guys if you guys have any questions, comments, or concerns, make sure to reach out to us. I would also like any of my Ukrainian, our Ukrainian followers, or our Russian followers, to reach out to us. You know, we'd like to know what's going on. It, it's good to hear from people because the media is not telling us everything. And I've, I've seen numerous things from both sides that you're not going to see on CNN or Fox. So I would like to have a dialogue with you guys, maybe even a Russian and a Ukrainian that are both Orthodox. And I think that could be something interesting. So if you are from either, either of those places or you have family members there or your clergy there, that would, that would be, you know, very great to hear from you as well. So may God bless you during this time and stay safe. We'll be praying for you. Also, ask your um, parish if they can get a prayer in there during the litany for Russia and Ukraine. I think that's right. very helpful. Right. There are some some jurisdictions that are doing that, or at least there are some hierarchs who have put out um, prayers to be added to the litany. I don't remember precisely who yeah. actually has done that. And not just that. for Ukraine. I've seen I've seen that. You know, like let's pray for Ukraine, and they they leave out Russia, and it's like we have to be conscious that they're both our brothers and sisters. So. And, if I may make an allusion to a story that we've discussed before, when the Russo-Japanese War broke out at the, in the, I believe it was in 1901, um, late 19th, early 20th century, um, that was roughly contemporaneous with the works of, or with the work of St. Nicholas, the Enlightener of Japan, right? Who, for anyone who's unaware, is a Russian Orthodox bishop. <laughs> and so there's a, community of Orthodox Christians growing in Japan that are under the Patriarchate of Moscow, technically. And when this war starts, um, St. Nicholas's Japanese priests come to him and say, you know, um, Vladika, who, what do we do? Who do we commemorate? Who do we pray for? This is bad. And St. Nicholas says, well, it's your responsibility and your duty to pray for your country and for your soldiers and for your government. And I will do the same for mine. 
and pray that God, God in his wisdom brings this conflict to a swift end and that the side that is supposed to, or the side that is right wins. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, that's a really hard thing to do because, you know, especially in, in a situation where you undoubtedly have devout Orthodox men killing other devout Orthodox men. That's a really, really unpleasant situation to say the very least. I know that's a rather catastrophic understatement, but we need to pray that this tragedy comes to a swift and peaceful resolution and that anyone who wants this conflict to be prolonged for any reason is removed from trying to help um, direct it because that's not something that needs to happen. Yeah, I agree. Well, moving on. So we're going to talk about St. Patrick, the Bishop of Armagh and the Enlightener of Ireland, who also is the patron saint of Ian's um, oldest son. So yeah. with that in mind, I will stop yakking. That was confusing. My oldest son? I mean, I guess My only? Not, but we won't go there. <laughs> um, since I've already spoken a lot, we'll let Ian take it away. Yeah, so St. Patrick, also known as the Bishop of Armagh, Enlightener of Ireland is commemorated on March 17th, which is fastly approaching. And the other saint we'll be talking about is St. David of Wales, who there's some controversy over when um, the day... the first or the third of this Yeah, month. we've already commemorated St. David of Wales. But yeah, St. Patrick, the Enlightener of Ireland, was born around the year 385, the son of Calpurnius, a Roman decurion, decurion, an official responsible for collecting taxes. He lived in the village of... Bonavin, I'm not going to Tabernai, which may have been located at the mouth of the Severn River in Wales. The district was raided by pirates when Patrick was 16, and he was one of those taken captive. He was brought to Ireland and sold as a slave, and he was put to work as a herder of swine on a mountain identified with Slemish in the county of Antrim, county or country? County. County. During his period of slavery, Patrick acquired a proficiency in the Irish language, which was very useful to him in his later mission. He prayed during his solitude on the mountain and lived this way for six years. He had two visions. The first told him he would return to his home, and the second told him his ship was ready. Setting off on foot, Patrick walked 200 miles to the coast. There he succeeded in boarding a ship and returned to his parents in Britain. Sometime later, he went to Gaul and studied for the priesthood at Auxerre, under St. Germanus. Uh, July 31st is when we commemorate St. Germanus. Eventually, he was consecrated as a bishop, and he was entrusted with a mission to Ireland, succeeding St. Palladius, July 7th. St. Palladius did not achieve much success in Ireland. After about a year, he went to Scotland, where he died in 432. Patrick had a dream in which an angel came to visit, visit him, bearing many letters, selecting one inscribed, the voice of the Irish, he heard the Irish entreating him to come back to them. Although St. Patrick achieved remarkable results in spreading the gospel, he was not the first or only missionary in Ireland. He arrived around 432, though this date is often disputed, about a year after St. Palladius began his mission to Ireland. There was also other missionaries who were active on the southeast coast, but it was St. Patrick who had the greatest influence and success in preaching the gospel of Christ. Therefore, he is known as the Enlightener of Ireland. His autobiog autobiography, titled The Confession, tells of his many trials and disappointments that he endured. Patrick had once confided to a friend that he was troubled by a certain sin he had committed at a younger age. The friend assured him of God's mercy and supported Pat Patrick's nomination as bishop, later turned against him and revealed what Patrick had done and told him, and in order to prevent him from consecration. Many years later, Patrick still grieved for his dear friend who had publicly shamed him. St. Patrick founded many churches and monasteries across Ireland, but the conversion of the Irish people was no easy task. There was much hostility, and he was even assaulted many times. He faced danger and insults, and he was reproached for being a foreigner and a former slave. There was also a very real possibility that the pagans would try to kill him. Despite many obstacles, he remained faithful to his calling, and he baptized many people into Christ. And um, why do you want to speak on why it was particularly hard for people in that time in Ireland to be converted? I know we had the Druids, and maybe you could briefly explain to people what the Druids were and you know the challenges that St. Patrick faced and that he ultimately overcame. But now we're kind of seeing a digression again in 
in the Western world and in mm -hmm. Europe back to you know a pagan way of life. I, I, I would say that St. Patrick faced what were probably normal um, uh, levels of opposition, at least normative for the time in which he was evangelizing. However, one of the things that made the the Celtic pagans particularly sketchy, for lack of a better phrase, was the, we'll say the Near Easternness of, of their religious praxis. So in Rome, it wasn't very common to hear of or see um, human sacrifice occur. They did it on occasion, but even when they did, it was like a yeah, so things are going really, really bad. Hannibal's pretty close to Rome and thinking about knocking down the gates. So what do the sibling oracles say we ought to do? Oh, we've got to sacrifice two Gauls and uh, and two Greeks. Okay, we'll do that. Um, so, but we're not actually going to kill them. We're just going to bury them alive um, so that we technically don't kill them. So, so like even the Romans were really afraid, or not afraid, but they weren't keen on doing on performing human sacrifice, unlike their most notable enemies, the Carthaginians, who were entirely copacetic with the practice the celts and the gallic tribes were also very agreeable very amenable to the practice of human sacrifice if you read um julius caesar's um, conquest of gaul that's one of the things he talks about is that they're totally okay with it they have this practice of making a giant wicker man and filling it with captives and burning them alive right yeah. and that's something that's not uncommon sounds like burning man i mean that's kind of where it came from actually <laughs> So when St. Patrick shows up to Ireland, he's coming into a culture that is far more, far more um, accepting of the practice of human sacrifice than, say, the Greeks or the Persians would be, right? So, Yeah, because even the Romans would sacrifice, but they would say things like, they would kind of just write it off. Well, the Romans did animal sacrifice, but they would do, they, they would have really do human sacrifice. But when they did, they would be like, yeah, well, that was just like, right. that was just one time. Right. Well, it's not even that it's just one time. It's just one of those things where they do it when they have to, but they're still kind of like, eh, I don't really know if I, if we think that's a good idea. Yeah. You know, um, the, the most, the, the, the best example I think of actually how human sacrifice worked for the Romans is. And it's actually kind of hard to even interpret as human sacrifice. It's more like a execution by deity. And that is when um, the Vestal Virgins, who are the priestesses of the goddess of the hearth, they're supposed to be virgins for the entirety of their service to the goddess, right? And if one of them slept around, and usually the way that this was determined was when you know, great disasters were befalling Rome. Like, you know, when the, when the Goths or the, not the Goths, when the, when the Gauls invade, um, uh, Rome in, in the early, in the Republic, the period of the Republic, they discover by casting lots that one of the Vestal Virgins has been unfaithful to her vows. She's not been chased. So what they do is they bury her in a tomb with a little bit of water and a little bit of food. <laughs> And that's kind of their sacrifice to appease the goddess, even though they don't actually kill her, right? And that's how generally the Romans would engage in human sacrifice. They'd bury you alive because they didn't want to have their hands bloody with that, which is hilarious because the Romans weren't squeamish in other ways. Like, you look at the ways they killed people and what they did to villages and towns that they conquered that were rebellious, they're not exactly the people who are like, oh, no, but there's women and children. Maybe we should be nice. It's like, no, they, they yeah. really didn't care. <laughs> no. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. And forgive me guys for, uh, for stepping out for a second. If you're watching this video, there was, a, a the shovel. it was the snow shovel that hangs up outside. <laughs> I thought my neighbors were like hanging pictures, but it was just the snow shovel scraping against. So I forgive me if you heard it or if you're that's, watching and you're wondering if I why I just ab abandoned Nathan after asking him a question. <laughs> well, that's that snow shovel is a particular problem because for anyone who doesn't know, um, Ian and I are operating out of Flagstaff, which is Father Anthony Cook's hometown. And one of the, the things that Flagstaff suffers that no one talks about is catastrophic wind all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's it's bad. <laughs> it is. People think that, oh, you're in Arizona. It must be nice and warm. Yes, sometimes. I mean, 75 degrees in Flagstaff is warm, and then I'm complaining that it needs to go back down to 50 degrees because yeah. I'm sweating. But anyway, yeah, that's why St. Patrick had... One of the reasons why. One of the reasons why he had 
you know, a lot of a lot of issues converting the Irish people of that time to to Christianity. The Saint's Epistle to Caroticus is also an authentic work. In it, he denounces the attack of Caroticus's men on one of his congregations. The breastplate, also known as the Lorica, which is the prayer of Saint Patrick, is also attributed to Saint Patrick. In his writings, we can see St. Patrick's awareness that he had been called by God, as well as his determination and modesty in undertaking his missionary work. He refers to himself as a sinner, the most ignorant and of least account, and as someone who was despised by many. He ascribes his success to God rather than to his own talents. He says, I owe it to God's grace that through me so many people should be born again into him. By the, by the time he established his Episcopal See in Armagh, is that how you say that? I think so. Armagh, Armagh, in 444, St. Patrick had other bishops to assist him, many native priests and deacons, and he encouraged the growth of monasticism. St. Patrick is often depicted holding a shamrock or with snakes fleeing from him, and if you don't know, one of the reasons he used he was holding the shamrock or he used the shamrock was to illustrate the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, the three leaves growing out of a single stem, helped him to explain the concept of God, of one God, in three persons. Many people now regard the story of St. Patrick driving all the snakes out of Ireland as having no historical basis. St. Patrick reposed on March 17th, 461, some say 492. There are various accounts of his last days, but they are mostly legendary. Muerchu says that no one knows the place where St. Patrick is buried. St. Columba of Iona, who we commemorate on June 9th, says that the Holy Spirit revealed to him that Patrick was buried at Saul, the site of his first church. A granite slab was then placed at his traditional gravesite in Downpatrick in 1899. So with the idea of St. Patrick driving out the snakes from Ireland, if people don't know, you can Google this. There is no snakes in Ireland. I'm pretty sure there never has been. And, you know, obviously some people contribute that to, to St. Patrick. The the, de, the devout may say that, that it is due to St. Patrick. And then some people say it has to do with, you know, where they're at geographically, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the main point to take from this is that he drove out the snakes, snakes being demons. Right. So um, do you have anything to say about that? So whether or not there ever were snakes of the garden type variety in um, Ireland is something that I'm not going to discuss because I don't actually care. Um, the thing that I find to be particularly interesting though, like Ian said, is that this almost unequivocally refers to the teachings of the druids and the demons that people worshipped at the time. Um, if Do you have your anthologian handy so we can pull up the breastplate of St. Patrick? Yeah, let me grab that. Because that's got some something interesting that I just thought about the other day. Um, so one of the things that is said in this anthologian, or in rather the breastplate of St. Patrick, is he calls upon Christ to protect all Christians from druids, witches, and the spells of smiths, which is pretty interesting. Maybe that'll be something we talk about on a later date. But uh, that line is, I call, so, so this is like, this is towards the end of it, but it says, I call up. I call upon all these virtues against every hostile, merciless power which may attack my body and my soul, against the incantations of false prophets, against the black laws of heathenism, against the false laws of heresy, against the deceits of idolatry, against the spells of witches and smiths and druids, and against every knowledge that blinds the soul of man. And then he proceeds to discuss various ways that um, evil can be used to harm the godly. But what he's talking about in that section is effectively protect me from the servants of demons and the attacks of demons that can be um, called down upon others, upon anyone who is standing in opposition to these demons. So when St. Patrick drives snakes out of Ireland, he's driving the demons that the people worshipped out of that land. And I would submit to you that the evidence that he was successful in this is not actually just in the story. It's in the fact that Ireland has been a fairly devoutly Catholic country for the vast majority of its existence since St. Patrick's time. And this can be evidenced by the fact that the alphabet soup lobby and the baby murdering abortion lobby only very recently, I believe it's in the last like four or five years, right? It was like 20, yeah. 2016 or 2017, that they were finally able to make these things legal in Ireland, which indicates to me that 
the snakes are trying to come back and in some way are succeeding in coming back. So there now are currently snakes in Ireland, but a different kind well, of a different kind that he chased out. Not of the garden variety, right? Not, not of the garter snake variety. Yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question. No. Yeah. And, (laughs) and, and for people that, um, are interested, this, the Anthologian, I don't know if it'll focus. It's from St. Ignatius Orthodox Press. There we go. It's a wonderful prayer book. It has your hours. It has, it has everything in it. You know, it's, and it has some beautiful iconography, iconography in it. But the prayer of St. Patrick is honestly one of my favorites. It's becoming something that I say regularly. It's, it's got a good length to it. You know, you feel you feel as if you've actually prayed a little bit, and it has it, it encompasses everything. Like you said, it mm-hmm. it mentions many different things, and especially, you know, me working at this new new medical in the medical field, the people I'm surrounded by, you know, they're not all Christian. Well, one of your friends is a straight out and out pagan, right? Yeah, he took the the name of a Norse deity that uh, will go unnamed, but you know, if you know anything about the obsessions of contemporary culture, you can guess. Yeah, <laughs> but there's but the thing is, when I come home and I pray the I pray the prayer of Saint Patrick, or before I go to work, it's like I feel a little bit more at ease being around people that who knows what they're partaking in. So yeah, I would pick up a copy of the Anthologian if 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 you can. You can get it through Saint Ignatius Orthodox Press. It's filled with great prayers and and has all the things you need to. To get through, it can be a little intimidating. I think it's over a thousand pages, but it's one of those things that it's good to have in your arsenal of prayer books. Because I know Nathan also he uses the Saint Ticon, mm-hmm. and I I need to I need to grab that. Everybody says that that's their favorite prayer prayer well, book, like their go to. I've got one from Saint Vlad's, and I've got one. I've got the Saint Ticon's one, obviously, and then I have this one from Saint Ignatius. Um, I like all three of them, but I will say the Saint Ticon's uses the most archaic English. It's not necessary. Like, if you've been Orthodox for any amount of time, one of the biggest issues I think that you face, as far as um, detail-oriented things go, is the slight variations in things like the Creed or Psalm fifty-one. Well, like or, the Anthologian yeah. says, "Holy God, holy strong, holy mighty," or it's it's, it's holy immortal. I think is what it says still. Or, yeah. So, so you'll you'll run across those slight linguistic. Yeah, it differences. says holy God, holy strong, holy immortal. And when I first read that, I was like, I, I kind of like it, but I also am so used to saying holy God, holy mighty, right. holy immortal. So there's going to be different translations. So, so my advice to to anyone who's got these things memorized, don't ever read them out of the prayer book once you have them memorized, because if the prayer book is of a different, slightly different translation, it's going to screw you up so yeah. badly. It's like, I don't ever open a prayer book when I'm doing the Trisagion prayers. You know, if I'm doing the Creed, I don't look and see what they've written down. I barely pay attention to Psalm 50 because I already kind of know the flow. I don't have it completely memorized, but like, as long as I know what the starting line is, I can usually finish the rest of it. So it's like, but the problem is I'm still, I'm still, what what I'm saying for Psalm 50 is like a bastardization of four different versions of it. Yeah. So it's like, okay. And it's also Psalm 51 in... The in the like Hebrew, the, in the Masoretic yeah. translation. I, I can never also remember which one's the Greek. So if I say 50 or 51, I'm not, well. You're not wrong. I'm technically right, but I never know which one I should use. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just, I figured that'd be a good thing for to let our, our listeners know that if you're interested in a good prayer book and if, or good prayer, look up the St. Patrick Breastplate also known as the Lorica. It is a beautiful prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have heard it before uh, prior to Orthodoxy. I knew that it was it was a thing, so to speak, but I bought the Anthologian for myself, and then I got it uh, for Nathan for his birthday, and he said, did you know that there was the prayer of St. Patrick in there? And I, I didn't. I don't think I knew it. So I went back, I found it, and now I have it marked, and I couldn't recommend it enough. It's, it's a great prayer. So yeah, moving on, that was the life a brief life of St. Patrick, the Enlightener of Ireland, who we commemorate here in a few days on March 17th. And Nathan, I know you're excited to nerd out on St. David and some of the medieval Myth- mythology that, that you know, surrounds him and the areas that that he was around, as, you know, such as Glastonbury, which I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on a, quite a few times because there's an 
if you guys ever ever want to go to Glastonbury, there's a great music festival there. Um, just I'm kidding. I'm always impressed <laughs> you can keep a straight face for as long as you do. No, that that is one of the reasons I knew of Glastonbury is because there's like a pagan music festival there, which, I mean, there's some amazing performances from Radiohead and other bands that I still like. But Radiohead's pagan? No, but I'm saying like the... the I mean, I'm not surprised. Yeah, but I'm just saying in general, it's... We'll touch on this, but it seems like they're trying to to take take back, like you mentioned, with the snakes re-entering Ireland and you know Europe. It's like they're they're taking this sacred, holy site and they're blaspheming it with this music festival full of drugs and alcohol. So, mm-hmm. yeah, let's go ahead and get into the life of Saint David, and uh, I'll let I'll let Nathan take the mic for a minute. Okay, so before we get into the life of Saint David proper. If you've never seen one of these, this is a copy of the Mabinogi, which is otherwise known as the four branches of um, the, of, of Welsh mythology and poetry. A lot of the stuff that's talked about in St. David's life has some reference in this text. And it's also got some really cool stories and some really cool poetry that if you've ever read, um, oh, what am I thinking of? Geoffrey of Monmouth's The History of the Kings of Britain, you'll know that the British are under the impression that they're descended from Troy, right? From the from Aeneas, they think that they're um, that. Let me think. Brutus is Aeneas's grandson, I think, if my memory's correct. So there's some really cool poetry in here that talks about that, but definitely worth checking out. Yeah. Also, just so you guys know, we're still still kind of working out some kinks for this. So if you see us looking in this direction, it's because we're trying to make sure that we're in focus or that the audio is good. Um, yeah, just so you guys know, because I know that some people are like, what are they, what are they like side-eyeing over there? I'm just staring at Ian, making sure his beard doesn't get longer than mine. Okay, so I'm going to read a brief bit from the life of St. David. It's not, um, it's, it's from a book called um, A Staff to the Pilgrim by a fellow named Gabriel Cooper Rochelle. It's a really interesting book. Can you show that for people? I, I don't agree with everything that he says. Um, there you go. It won't. It probably won't focus because I have it set to focus on us. Just hold it back by your face. There we go. Okay, worth checking out. It's got the lives of several um, Western saints, well, British saints specifically, but it's totally worth checking out. Um, and also, I like it because the author talks about using the Jesus prayer when he rides bikes, which is something that I do. So I've got some. I'm gonna say, <laughs> when I first found Orthodoxy, and I was, it was summer. And I was riding the bike or running when I would do like multiple miles. See, you're insane though. No one, no one actually likes to run. No, of course not. <laughs> but what I did find myself doing was the Jesus prayer. And it really kind of just made me not even think about, mm-hmm. I would stop looking at my watch right. and I'm like, wow, okay. I'm halfway up snowball already. You know, I oh, mean, I haven't done snowball in a long time. So yeah. But yeah, I think that's, I think that's a great thing to do is to be, if you go to any, any of the monasteries, you're going to see the monks or the nuns walking around, you know, like whispering, whatever. Right. People are like, oh, what are they saying? Most likely they're saying the Jesus prayer throughout their whole day, no matter what they're doing, what they're working on. And it's it's a great practice. It's something I've been trying to do while I'm at work in, in the medical field, is I have my headphones in listening to homilies and saying the Jesus prayer as I put together heart stents. And, you know, yeah, so it kind of helps me. It just kind of takes my mind off of the environment I'm in. All right, so... St. David reposed in the year 589. Tradition holds that he was born in Cardiganshire in Wales, and his mother was the holy woman St. Non, who was sainted and famous in her own right, both in Wales and Brittany. His father was the King Sanctus, or as we'll get into later with Nogaran here, uh, whose name befits the man's faithfulness as well. The author and compiler of the life of St. David says that his birth was surrounded by natural wonders, in particular a thunderstorm of great intensity. This, of course, is a way of saying that David was in some sense a second Christ, at least to the Welsh people. David began his life in the church with a monk at the monastery called Irhenluin, or the Old Grove. He showed a deep love for Christ and the church which manifested itself in a life of holiness characterized by simplicity and charity towards others. David spent a decade in training at the Old Grove, learning the psalms and hymnody of the church, worship life, and leadership. He developed a passion, developing a passion for the faith led him into mission work. In this, he joined many other Celtic saints who followed the threefold path of martyrdom, which included wandering for the sake of planting the faith. This is known as white martyrdom. According to Rigfark, St. David founded no less than a dozen monasteries as far afield as Glastonbury and Bath. 
He founded his first monastery near his birthplace. In time, it became the site for the 12th century Cathedral of St. David. The town now, now bears his name, and the cathedral is the site of pilgrimage on March 1st each year, which is his name, which is his feast day. St. David's sanctity is demonstrated by his asceticism. He taught the monks of his monasteries to live an austere life, spending most of the day in silence. They drank no wine, eating uh, mostly vegetables and bread and precious little meat. And the meat that they did eat was in the form of fish. Because leeks were a plentiful and regular part of their diet, they eventually became a symbol for Wales itself and remain the national plant to this day. So if you ever go to Wales on St. David's Day, you'll see people running around with leeks stuck in their hats. It's actually kind of hilarious. Nice. And pretty and awesome. You didn't get the chance to visit the cathedral because you were there. I did not because I was an idiot and was, well, I also didn't do a typical American student thing. Like I didn't go to the UK or to Europe and just like hike around. I actually only traveled out of Swansea, which was the town I lived in once. <laughs> the rest of the time I, or no, twice. Once for a history conference. The rest of the time you just stayed in the town that you were in. I stayed in the town, hung out in the town, got to know some of the local people and uh, hung out on the beach a lot, which knowing my phobia of water is a hilarious thing in retrospect. But Yeah. Do you not like flying over water? I was terrified both times I flew over. That makes me s- that makes me so happy. <laughs> Why? That I was sitting there wishing I was like being terrified that I was going to crash and yeah. somehow survive the crash. And be you would rather crash into land? Yes. But then you're definitely dead. Yes, but I'm not going to have to sit there in the water for a couple of days right. and die. Fair enough. Sounds horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 cool to go there. It's it's kind of like their Fourth of July, but it actually has overtones of holiness, even though most Welsh don't actually know. Which well, is, we have hot dogs. That's the single most perverse thing that I know, we consume in the we, U.S. But still, we have hot. Do they have hot dogs? No. Why would they have hot dogs? I don't know. You said it's 4th of July. I said it's kind of like the 4th of July. Okay. Okay. Uh, where were we? No written rule survives from St. David's monasteries, but we can infer that it was similar to the austere rules that governed other monasteries of Celtic leaders like St. Columba or St. Gildas, which in turn were grounded in the approach of St. Anthony of the Desert and St. John Cassian, whose rule brought Anthony's influence to the West. St. David's approach to sanctity, however, however austere, freed he and his monks from char- for charitable works. Rigfark is lavish in his praise for the work of St. David caring for the, in caring for the brethren and feeding the multitude of, orthen, of orphans, wards, widows, needy, sick, and feeble pilgrims. Needy, sick, and feeble, and pilgrims. So he started, so he, started he, so he continued, and so he ended. According to tradition, he lived for over 100 years and reposed on Tuesday, March 1st in 589. It is said that his monastery was filled with angels as Christ received his soul. St. David's reputation is based on his kindness, compassion, and understanding of the needs of others, and there is no record of violence or even harshness on his part. Indeed, he cared for the little things of life, by which he seems to have meant those attitudes and actions that bind society together in unity under God. This is holiness or sanctity at a very primary and basic level, a level from which we can all learn. Interestingly, St. David has not always been the patron saint of Wales. That honor was originally bestowed on St. Gwenfrew, who is also a phenomenal saint. Maybe we'll talk about her at some point. But when her relics were translated from Holywell to Shrewsbury, and thus outside the borders of Wales, the honor was transferred to St. David, on whom it rests to this day. Um, and his Traparian proceeds thusly, or his, I believe, yeah, his Traparian proceeds thusly. Having worked miracles in thy youth, founded monasteries, and converted the pagans who sought to destroy thee, O Holy Father David, Christ our God, bless thee to receive the episcopate at the place of his resurrection. Intercede for us that our lives may be blessed and our souls may be saved. Amen. Amen. Um, so interestingly, as that brief prayer insinuates, St. David was elevated to the rank of bishop in the Holy Land in Jerusalem, which is pretty awesome. And also, based on the date of his death in 589, he was born in 489 if he lived for 100 years, which puts him as roughly the immediate successor to St. Patrick in some ways. Yeah. Um, or at least he's beginning his around life the same his time. ministry around the time that St. Patrick dies, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, one of the stories that text doesn't touch on, although first, before we go there, have you any comments you wish to make concerning the life of St. David? No, no, honestly, no, not at all. I just like hearing about it. I know you're, it's, it's good. I think it's, it's really important for us to, you know, we, we can pick a saint or be given a saint's name when we're baptized, but some people don't spend the time getting to know anything about them. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, this is my saint. This is my baptismal name. 
Oh, where's he from? Uh, Cappadocia. <laughs> <laughs> Egypt. You know, it's like, right. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I, I, I appreciate the in-depth, the depthness. Also, before we go on to the story I was going to tell in a moment, his last words, according to his disciples, proceeded thusly. Be steadfast, brothers, and do the little things. And last night we had a good discussion on this, so hopefully we can kind of recapitulate it because it was yeah. a really awesome discussion. Yeah, and the little things are, especially as an Orthodox Christian, the most important. Right. You know, the little things such as waking up and praying before you get on TikTok, <laughs> you know. Before you're uh, on TikTok land, I think waking up and, you know, saying an Our Father or, like you said, the Creed or Psalm 50, 51, those types of things are, are really important or paying attention to the beggar on the street versus, you know, just just turning the corner or munching on the food you have in your car as you see him begging for food. I think it's important as Orthodox Christians or as Christians in general to do the little things such as prayer, fasting, almsgiving, confession, repentance, and service. And like I said, these little things are actually the fruits of what it is to be a Christian, and they're the things that you know, bring us closer to communion with God. And I, I think it's important. So yeah, be steadfast and do the little things. And I know you can probably elaborate on on some other things and maybe even have some sort of story or, or something. I'm sure you do. I, I see you're pigeonholing me yet again. That's yes. the only, I feel like that's the only reason I'm here is to tell ridiculous <laughs> stories of like five other people in the world now. Yeah. Um, because they're ridiculous and no one else cares to know them. Um, so the story that actually comes to mind is relating to a character in a book called Kristen Lovren's Daughter, um, which for anyone who's watched the last couple of podcasts, you know that I'm taking a, a couple of classes at uh, th through the Albertus Magnus Institute, which is a free undergrad kind of deal. And it's yeah, awesome. we can we can put the link in the description for people that are interested yeah. as well. It's they're not sponsoring us at all, but it, they're a Catholic. I mean, you can they're, they're a Catholic online university and they're awesome. Actually, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't turn it down. No, they're, they're really cool. But so one the book that we're going through right now is called Kristen Lovren's Daughter. And there's a character in there who's particularly interesting, a fellow by the name of Erland. And he's, I think, one of the best examples of someone who expects to do the big things, but isn't faithful in the little things. So his his primary, his main introduction, aside from random people talking about him, is saving the main character, Kristen, from being raped. And it's an awesome scene because he shows up and he's like the quintessential knight in shining armor. Yeah, the 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 best the ideal hero yeah. archetype. Yeah, like, you know, and he and it's not that he's, you know, saving a friend from being killed. Like he's literally saving a uh, a novitiate at a monastery from being raped. So like he appears to be in that moment the most virtuous of men. Right? He's fantastic. You can't help but like him. But then as the story progresses, you realize that one moment of heroism does not make a virtuous man because he has all these other things that he's dealing with that he hasn't dealt with well. And because of that, he's not faithful in the little things. And as a result, like that moment when he saves Kristen um, is kind of the high point of his life because you know, there, there comes a point when you know, Kristen gives birth to their son and his response is to be upset because now he's not the sole recipient recipient of Kristen's affection. It's like, hmm. that's pretty bad, man. I mean, yeah. like I, I get that if you're a husband or a father, that can be something that's like, oh yeah, that's a sentiment that can show up, but you need to shove that aside. You need to, you need to take that out back and kill it. Yeah. This is a helpless little being that needs all the love it can right? get. You've you're good. Right. You're okay. And you were once the recipient of that love from your mother. Yeah. So get over it yourself. That's how the and that's how the baby's there because there was love involved, hopefully. Right. So going back to what St. David said about being faithful in the little things, just because you grasp at the opportunity in a big way doesn't mean that you have the foundation built to support that. Right. So if it, it is far better to to be a good man, like Ian was saying, you know, give a couple bucks to a homeless man when you see him. Um, do your prayers in the morning. It's far better to live a life having been that man and never having had to step forward and be a hero because you are the kind of man at that point who could have been a hero just because you didn't find yourself in the position to act in such a yeah, way. Yeah, and it's also like, how do you, 
how do you, for lack of better terms, continue riding that wave? If you save someone from being raped, it's like now you're just waiting for the next big opportunity. It's like you're not even you're not paying it up to it. Yeah, you're not paying attention to, I mean, not everybody, but you're not paying attention to all the little things that need to be taken care of. It's like you're just waiting for another moment to be a hero. But you can be a hero all the time for your community, for your family, for your friends, for your for your parish, mm-hmm. by doing the little things and encouraging others to do that as well. And I'm not saying we're we're good at it, but it's definitely something to keep in the back of your mind. It's do the little things. They they matter more than you could ever ever realize. And and people people will see it. You know. Don't strive to be an Achilles. Yeah. I'll just exactly. Put it that way. Um, as anyone know, as everyone who's ever read the Iliad knows, Achilles is not the most admirable character out there. No. Um, be a Hector, and yeah, be, be Hector. Don't be Achilles. Be Hector. So yeah, what about Glastonbury? I know there's a lot of holiness and sanctity, right, surrounding that area in regards to Saint David, but also in regards to others you know, such as King Arthur. So that is where his, his, his remains were. Well, um, we'll, we'll get there in a minute. You okay, can't spoil that okay, just yet. Okay. So Glastonbury is very important because as it says, um, Radiohead I, music festival. No, I, to be honest, I made some comments about Radiohead a minute ago. I don't even know what they sound like. Mm-hmm. I've probably heard them before, but I could not pull their music out of a lineup if my life depended on it. I could sing you a song. I think i can live without that all right guys we're going to start a patreon account if you'd like to hear me sing radiohead songs i I thought we're going to get away from this (laughs) go ahead um so one of the other events that happens in saint david's life is he goes to found a new church at um at glastonbury and when he goes to do so christ appears to him in a vision and says a church has already been dedicated here to my mother you don't need to do like this is already a holy place you you don't need to start to found another church here and so saint david says oh okay that's awesome and he leaves so the foundation of that church is actually goes back to saint joseph of arimathea right so who is saint joseph of arimathea ian for anyone who doesn't know i don't know that's a lie (laughs) i don't know okay so saint joseph of arimathea is the one who donates his tomb to christ which was not which was not utilized um, for very long. Um, but he gives a clean cut tomb to God or to Christ and Christ obviously occupies it for a few days and then comes back and it's no longer necessary. Right. And then it becomes a sacred place. So St. Joseph is a tin merchant according to church tradition. And he spends his time. Um, how shall I say? He eventually, towards the end of his life, goes to the UK, right, on pilgrimage, and he brings with him a staff, and he also brings with him the Holy Grail, which maybe we'll, which maybe we'll talk about at, at a different point. But he brings these two items with him specifically, and he and his pilgr- and he and his followers show up to Glastonbury, which at the time is a is an island, in the middle of a swamp. So he shows up there. They're tired. He sticks his staff in the ground, and lo and behold as happens when apostles tend to do things like this, the staff becomes alive again, right? And for anyone who's ever done any hiking with a walking stick, if you walk from Palestine to Britain, yeah, your staff is not alive by the time you get to Britain. Unless God has allowed it to be. Right. But even so, it's probably, like, unless God is doing that, it's not alive. You have a dead piece of wood with you. So he sticks this thing in the ground, and it, you, you look like you're about to make a snarky comment. No, not at all. I'm listening. It comes to life at flowers. Jeez, Nathan. <laughs> that is like is most that... of you and I's relationship. <laughs> um, so the staff comes to life, right? And according to tradition, it blooms twice a year, once in May and once in December. Pasca. I've, I've got this sense that there's some sort of significance to that. Yeah, right? maybe like Pasca and the nativity. Hmm, that, that could be it. That could yeah. be it. Um, and interestingly, jumping forward in time for a moment, or maybe for the Easter bunny, uh, no. Okay. So interestingly, there is still a shrub, a small tree that grows on Glastonbury that is not native 
to Britain. Hmm. You know where it's native to? Hmm. If, if you were to hazard a guess, what would you think? You know, probably China. China. <laughs> China. Okay. <laughs> this is why we can't have nice things, people. This is why I'm drinking a four dollar bottle of wine right now. Um, I would I would say where he traveled from. No. Right. So the tree that grows there is called a Levantine hawthorn. And as you might guess, based on the name, it's from the Levant, which is another name for the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, otherwise known as Palestine. So from him traveling with his staff, placing it in the ground, it it sprouted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. So there's that. There's also, though, another story, and that is that St. Joseph also buried the Holy Grail on at the foot of Glastonbury Tor. And there is still a holy spring that is flowing with reddish tinged water now the argument from the from the modern materialists is that that is the case because there's high iron content in the water that's like the scientific argument right but that's also the how not the why but also there's iron in or, blood the, i'm sorry i always get that the why. It's the why not the how and there's also a high or i, I don't know you, you know what i mean there's a lot of it's the iron explanation, not the um, justification for why that's happening. Yeah, but there's also a lot of iron in blood. Correct. So they're not proving anything by saying, "Oh, there's just iron." There's right. like an iron deposit here. And there's there's another story that we've talked about before: the life of Saint Melangel of Wales or Melangel. I can never think of how to say her name properly. But where she was beheaded and where she was resurrected by God, um, a, a holy well came bubbling out of the ground and as well still and there red tinged water too yeah still there people people take pilgrimages to yeah. these to these holy mm -hmm. sites right so there's that to consider so all that to say glastonbury is extremely important right but here's another interesting thing as well the going back to saint david so as we've discussed the, let me look at my notes real fast and see if i can read them so the lineage of saint david of wales proceeds thusly the King Caradig, Gwithnogaran here, and his wife Nan. And then St. David has a sibling. You know, that's that's his parents. But Elf, David, Elfin? Elfin is the sibling's name. And for anyone who's read that text that I talked about a few minutes ago, the Mabinogian, the name Elfin will sound really, really familiar. And that's because Elfin is the foster father of Taliesin. Yeah. Right? So. Who is known as? Who is, what do you mean? Who is prior, his previous name? Yeah was Gwyn Bach, who's yeah. the servant of a woman named Caradwen, who was not necessarily the nicest person, but we'll talk about her at some other point. But she makes this concoction to try to make her son the wisest man who's ever lived. Gwyn Bach is her servant, and he's supposed to be stirring this cauldron to make sure that when the time comes and this potion is ready, um, hmm. Her son will be able to have it, and he'll become this wise man and become become somebody. Effectively, sounds a little pagan. Little yes, very pagan. <laughs> so what ends up happening though is Caradwen falls asleep, which you're not supposed to do if you're making magic things. You're supposed to stay awake. <laughs> so she falls asleep. The potion gets ready, and there are a couple of different variations on what happens. But one of them is that the potion because it's boiling obviously splashes out of the cauldron and lands on Gwenbach's hand and he because you know what do you do when you get burned you suck on the burn he does that and he ingests the potion and then he becomes wise Caradun wakes up sees what happens and starts to chase him to kill him and in the Mabinogian one of the things that said is and because he was so wise he perceived that she was angry and would stop at nothing to destroy him and I read that and go yeah well if you're a servant and you took the potion you weren't supposed to have, it doesn't take a very wise man to figure out that your yeah. mistress is going to be kind of perturbed <laughs> and might have no ill or no goodwill towards you at that point. So Caradwen chases Gwynbach, um, and eventually to hide from her, he turns himself into a single grain of wheat in, in a storehouse full of wheat, right? So actually a pretty good plan, but... Because she is also clever, she turns herself into a hen and eats all the grain, including him. And hmm. she effectively like impregnates herself. It's kind of weird. And when she finally gives birth to him, because he sits in her belly for nine months, when as a hen, when she's a hen, yeah, 
And so when she gives birth to him, she realizes she can't kill him. So she puts him in a basket and throws him off into either a river or the sea, depending on who you talk to. And all this occurs right about the time that King Arthur becomes the king of Britain, right? So Gwyn, so Gwynbach is on the sea floating around for approximately 40 years, and he's eventually caught by Elfin. 40 years? 40 years, which has some really curious um, yeah. analogies to That's what I was saying. Moses. Yeah, um, just the 40. The God seer. So he's floating around for 40 years, and he eventually gets caught in a salmon weir, which is just a salmon trap, effectively, usually on a stream. So he gets caught in that. Elfin finds him. The son of Gwyddnogaran here finds him. And when he opens up this basket, he sees a child's shining face. And so he names him Taliesin. So that's St. David's foster nephew. Right? And so at the time when St. David's alive, it's only theoretically been, I mean, King Arthur's memory is still pretty fresh. It's only been 40 years. Yeah. So now back to Glastonbury Tor. Everyone says King Arthur's a myth, right? That, but there's actually some really interesting archaeological evidence that we won't get into aside from uh, the bit that happens on Glastonbury. So for anyone who knows, King Arthur is killed by Mordred, right? He stabs Mordred with a spear. Mordred, in an act of impressive and also kind of disconcerting spite, pulls himself up the spear, pulls out his sword, which is actually Arthur's sword, and hits Arthur Strikes in, the head, him in the head. Right? So in 1181... The monks at Glastonbury are doing some repair work and some excavation at their abbey because there's been a fire. And as they're digging, they find this huge oak tree trunk that's been buried. And they realize it's been turned into a coffin. So they open it up. And in that coffin is a very large man with a head wound and a woman's skeleton laying next to him. And there's also a lead cross that says, let me see if I can read my own handwriting again. Here lies buried the famous King Arthur on the Isle of Avalon. Which is pretty interesting because this happens before some of the more well thought out Arthurian legends show up. Right? This, is actually, this actually happens before Geoffrey of Monmouth writes the history of the kings of Britain and uh, various other um, interesting texts. So there's also... Oh, no, so the cross in there, I already said that. So one of the arguments that people put forward is, oh, well, no, this is obviously ridiculous because, you know, the monks were just trying to gain a lot of... Uh, like not notoriety. Notoriety. But the problem with that is they're already at the site where Joseph of Arimathea planted his tree and the Holy Grail is buried. Yeah, they're good. So they're already <laughs> squared away. Um, and we have seven, 16th century drawings and commentary from this cross that indicate that it's probably legit. Yeah. And that... Also, there's other evidence that shows it because carbon-14 dating is not particularly good, um, that there's probably been a church, a, 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 what's the word, a permanent structure used as a church that has been on Glastonbury since at least the 6th century, which means there's probably, it's probably been a site of pilgrimage and there's probably been so more rudimentary structures. During the time of St. David. A long, long time. So it's, it's, a, it's already a holy site, known to be a holy site. So, all that to say, guys, through the life of St. David <laughs> and the life of St. Patrick, demons are real, are and were active in the UK. Still are. And, and also, King Arthur's real. Yeah. I think we're going to have a couple episodes on King Arthur. I also know that at some point we're going to get into the Marble King. Oh, yes. This is going to be fun. I didn't so, know we were going to do an episode on that. Yeah, we definitely should. And... I don't know. Do we have anything else to say before I make a, a few announcements? Um, I I don't know. I would say no. I, I don't think I have anything. Cool. Well, yeah, that was today's episode on Saint Patrick and Saint David of Wales. We are gonna continue doing lives of the saints and separate them probably from our regularly scheduled. Um, random rants yeah sometimes we just get ideas and text them to each other and then they end up being episodes but that being said hopefully we're going to have some special guests on soon i won't speak too much on it but it'll be it will be definitely in line with what we're talking about now 
and it'll be a continuation of, of these topics and maybe even some of the guests that we have on would like to talk about the Marble King. So um, yeah, there's going to be a lot more content coming soon. If you have anything that you want us to talk about, like I've said before, please reach out to us. Don't be hesitant if if you'd like us to say a prayer for you. And obviously, please, please pray for us as we continue, continue doing these things. And hopefully we're not saying anything out of line or, you know, damning ourselves. Any advice we give on this, talk to your spiritual father. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Ask your priest or your spiritual father first. Yeah. Because just because something is good doesn't mean it's good for you. Yeah. Just because something is good for me doesn't mean it's good for Ian and vice versa. Exactly. So yeah, always seek the counsel and, you know, spiritual guidance of your spiritual father, your parish priest, or, you know, a member a member of clergy that, that you trust. Nathan, that was disgusting. That felt so good. If anybody's watching, Nathan just had a f- full-blown exorcism on camera. <laughs> I don't know what that no, was. that was, I, I popped my neck. Can you not pop your neck? Not like, oh, not like that. Don't hurt yourself, Ian. Yeah. I, I'd hate to explain to your, your bride why I'm having to take you to the ER. Oh, she'll see it. <laughs> But yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of The Road to Paradise. Join us on the Instagram page. I promise that if you do that, you'll get to see me drink terrible, terrible beer, terrible whiskey, or maybe even my own homebrewed kvass, which may or may not kill people. We don't know yet. And I'll smoke terrible cigars and really good pipe tobacco. literally had my wife take a sip of that. Well, she's not dead yet, and I haven't died yet. We don't know yet. We haven't opened the door. Well, I don't think it would have been quiet. <laughs> True. It's my suspicion. We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll look at this scientifically here shortly. No, but in all honesty, have a blessed Lent. And like we said, be steadfast and remember to do the little things. May God continue to bless you. And may the Lord have mercy on all of us. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless. <laughs>